Hello friends, so happy you're here today. I'm chatting with Dr. Keisha Blaine about her new book called Until I Am Free. And I think you will love this book. It is about a civil rights hero, one of those women who is kind of sometimes relegated to the back shelves of history, but shouldn't be. Her name is Fannie Lou Hamer. And I think you will find her message incredibly inspirational, uplifting, and also eye-opening. So let's dive into my conversation with Dr. Keisha Blaine. I'm Sharon McMahon, and welcome to the Sharon Says So podcast. Dr. Blaine, thank you so much for joining me today. I am absolutely delighted to chat with you. Thank you so much for having me. I read with interest, with great interest, your new book. And I knew that the people who listen to this podcast would find the subject of this book fascinating. So can you start just by introducing yourself? And then we'll talk more about some of the things that are in your new work. Sure. Uh, Well, my name is Keisha Blaine, and I teach history at the University of Pittsburgh. I'm particularly interested in 20th century U.S. history African-American history, and the modern African diaspora. I have written several books uh, before this one. My first book is called Set the World on Fire. It's on Black nationalist women, primarily in the U.S., but, but also across the globe. And this new book, which I've just published, is on civil rights, Fannie Lou Hamer, really fits within the larger themes of my research. I tend to focus on Black women's history. I'm interested in global politics uh, as well as national politics and try as much as possible to center the ideas and experiences of individuals who we generally do not know much about. Mm, I relate to that so much. That is my personal interest in history too. I mean, George Washington Mm -hmm. is an interesting historic character, but there's approximately 12,000 books written on it. Right. Right. (laughs) I would love to know why you settled on her, Fannie Lou Hamer, Mm -hmm. as a subject. What made her interesting to you? So many reasons. I think as a historian, I I tend to encounter historical figures who are are interesting for a range of reasons, but it's not every day that you read about someone, you know, their speeches and somehow they have the ability to move you, you know, somewhat, one, one might say even beyond the grave. And so that was the case for Fannie Lou Hamer. I was taking a class on the civil rights movement as an undergraduate. And it was actually my senior year in college. And I was absolutely stunned to come across this woman. One, because I had never heard of her, which I found surprising given that I had been taking all these history courses. But the other thing too, is that I was so moved by her speech. Even today, we'll come across her powerful speech at the Democratic National Convention in 1964 And that speech gave me chills. I mean, it was really remarkable to see this um, working poor Black woman uh, in this setting, speaking truth to power. I mean, calling out racism, talking about the challenges that Black people were facing and doing it in such a raw and honest way. Um, That left a mark on me. And particularly, I was inspired by her story As, as a Black woman from the Mississippi Delta, someone who had you know, limited formal education, someone who was disabled, someone who had so many challenges, uh, who faced so many challenges, yet she pushed beyond them to make a difference in the lives of others. And it started to uh, force me to think about myself. And I started to wonder, you know, what could I do 
to make a difference in this world? What are, what are my skills and abilities? How can I use my voice, my research, my writing to make a difference? Uh, and so Fannie Lou Hamer was transformative for me, as I think she will be for many people who encounter her story. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. I, I remember reading that she was, you know, like the youngest of 20 children mm-hmm. and born into truly extraordinary poverty. And then when she went to vote, encountered a literacy test. Can you tell us more about her experiences leading up to her activism in the Mm -hmm. civil rights movement? Absolutely. As you pointed out, uh, Fannie Lou Hamer was born into a sharecropping family, and that meant particularly having a life uh, that closely mirrored uh, the institution of slavery. And, And of course, we know that slavery had ended with the passage of the 13th Amendment and Yet, uh, in replace of slavery, white landowners introduced a system of sharecropping, which effectively left Black people um, in a system of dependency and debt. And Hamer worked on the plantation. Uh, you know, one of the things that's so shocking was that Hamer was lured into a life of sharecropping initially because she was only six years old when the white landowner approached her and said, you know, I will give you candy from the store if you would pick cotton. Um, mm-hmm. As a six-year-old, you know, that seemed like a fair bargain. Uh, mm-hmm. She'd be able to get some treats that she liked. Of course, it was a trick. Um, and when she started picking cotton at the age of six, she effectively never stopped. And this played a huge role in her life. She worked on the plantation. She did manage to attend school, but was unable to stay in school for for a long time. She ultimately received about a sixth grade education, had to drop out in order to help her family on the plantation. And so all she knew was sharecropping. Um, What she knew was life in the Mississippi Delta, which was very difficult, as you can imagine at the time. 
shaped by violence. This was a, a moment where Hamer would, would certainly witness and, and, and hear others talk about acts of lynching. That was the context in which she lived. And it was not until much later in life, at the age of 44, that Hamer found out about her right uh, to vote as a citizen of the United States. She said that when she attended a mass meeting in August 1962, she was stunned to hear activists uh, who had been there organizing from the Student Nonviolence Coordinating Committee, to hear them talk about the Reconstruction Amendments, to hear them talk about uh, the fact that Black people could cast a ballot and, and the fact that Black people could overturn decades of you know, racist laws and policies. And she was moved by that and decided immediately that she would join the fight, that she would become a civil rights activist, but she also quickly uh, volunteered to register to vote. And not surprisingly, when she made that first attempt uh, in 62, she encountered resistance. And one of the, the forms of resistance was in the form of the literacy test. And as I said, Hamer had a sixth grade education uh, here she was being asked very detailed questions about the state constitution. She did not know the answer to those questions. Mm -hmm. And so she failed the test. And as we know, those were strategies meant to keep Black people um, from voting. Mm -hmm. And so that was her first experience, but it, it certainly was not the only. She would keep trying. And, you know, as I detailed in the book, she endured a lot of violence simply because she was trying to not only register herself to vote, but she was trying to register other people to vote. Mm. That is fascinating that she had never learned that mm -hmm. she had the right to vote. Why do you think that was? Well, there are several reasons. You know, Hamer emphasized the fact that she was certainly living in a remote area. And, you know, as she would emphasize, um, it was often difficult to get access to, to different kinds of information. And the reality is that within the, you know, the context of the Jim Crow South, White supremacists worked really hard to ensure that, that Black people wouldn't have full access to many things, not only material resources, but information. Um, they made sure that someone like Hamer would not actually know um, what her rights were as guaranteed by the Constitution, because of course, once you know what your rights are, you will try to exercise those rights. You, you will certainly fight to do so once you are aware and so keeping people disconnected from the information, making sure that people were unaware of what their rights are, became a, a powerful strategy, which is similar to in the context of slavery. When you think about all of the efforts to make sure that enslaved people did not learn how to read or write. I mean, that was mm -hmm. a way to certainly prevent people from organizing and strategizing mm -hmm. to resist. But it was also a way to, to keep them from even thinking broadly about uh, even human rights, uh, you know, about freedom. I mean, of, of course, it didn't work. People, I think, innately understood, like, there's something wrong with this system, right? I mean, we, you know, it's, and so they did resist still, even when people withheld information. But, but it was, I think, a strategy that persisted in the context of Hamer's life, always an attempt to keep, keep her from knowing the truth. Thankfully, she, she did find out through the context of the organizers in the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, and that's exactly why civil rights groups were viewed as a threat uh, for mm -hmm. so many people, because they came with information. I mean, they came to let people know, these are your rights, and we're here to make sure that you can actually vote in this instance. So, so it was transformative for Hamer, as it, as it were for so many Black people uh, living in the South at the time. Mm. 
the the idea that information itself mm-hmm. just the possession of information was mm-hmm. something that was seen as um we we can be violent against you because you have this information in living in the information age so many people today that idea seems ludicrous yeah. like we can literally we have the entirety of human knowledge at our fingertips yeah. in the form of a phone and the idea that you could be the victim of violence because mm-hmm. you were in possession of information mm-hmm. and the fact that that was not that long ago mm-hmm. is just i think so it's so important for us to understand about what information has meant to people. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. We've all had those embarrassing moments where maybe you've taken your shoes off and you realize like, "Oh no, Oh no, that is not a good smell. Fortunately, Lumi Whole Body Deodorant is making it so none of us ever have to worry about that again. Unlike certain other products, Lumi is powered by mandelic acid to control odor in a new way. It delivers outrageous 72-hour odor control everywhere one might like to use it. In fact, it was patients' concerns about odor that originally inspired the OBGYN who invented Lumi. Fast forward six years and her game-changing whole body deodorant now has over 300,000 five-star reviews. And it works without using heavy perfumes that mask odor, which I really appreciate. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, which is my favorite, and two free products of your choice, like deodorant wipes or a mini body wash. It also has free shipping. And as a special offer for listeners, new customers get 15% off all Lumi products with our exclusive code. And if you combine the 15% off with the already discounted starter pack, that's like 40% off their starter pack. So use code SHARON at lumideodorant.com. That's L-U-M-E-D-E-O-D-O-R-A-N-T. Com. Mother's Day is almost here, and I want to take just a quick second to appreciate not only my mom, all the moms out there, but anyone who has taken on the role of caregiver. You do everything for someone else, and now it's time to do something for yourself, and that includes starting with your skin. And I've been using our sponsor OneSkins products for a while now, and I have to tell you, I am really enjoying them. They are very easy to incorporate into my skincare routine. I am really liking the eye cream. And the secret is OneSkin's proprietary OS1 peptide. It is the first ingredient proven to switch off the aging cells that cause lines, wrinkles, and thinning skin. And they have several studies to back it up. OneSkin is the world's first skin longevity company. By focusing on the cellular aspects of aging, One Skin keeps your skin looking and acting younger for longer. Get started today with 15% off using code SHARON at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code 
Sharon. And after your purchase, they'll ask where you heard about them. Please support this show and tell them we sent you. For people who maybe are realizing, and I know that this is some of the people in my audience that like, wow, when I attended school, I did not learn about this, 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 this. I feel like a lot of adults today are realizing that the education they received perhaps was not um, the full picture of U.S. history. Perhaps they only learned a small little, like we memorized 1776 and the 4th of July. And, you know, like we have a a narrow view of, of, of the true history of this nation. Would you spend just one or two minutes telling us about sharecropping, Jim Crow, literacy tests and other forms of voter suppression that were prevalent throughout the South during that time frame. Absolutely. Um, and I think, you know, your point is such a valid one because I teach college courses and so many of my students come into the class and admit to me that they don't know much about the history, that they had not heard of it. Um, and, and, and there can often be a, a feeling of shame, but I say to students, many people have this experience uh, for a wide array of reasons, depending mm-hmm. on where you attended school, depending on when you attended school, would, would have a difference, uh, would, would make a difference in terms of the information that you have mm-hmm. on, on any given subject. But I think one of the things that's so important to understand within the, the context of the Jim Crow South is that uh, Black people were ultimately placed uh, in a position um, where you, you can only describe their circumstances as being treated as second-class citizens. What the Jim Crow system did beyond simply um, enforcing actual segregation and separation right, um, of races, what was also ensuring that people of African descent would have limited access to an array of things, and particularly in the realm of education as we're talking about today, in order to ensure that they would not have much social mobility. Um, When people found ways to move beyond the limitations as they often did through creativity and other kinds of strategies, the response was violence. Uh, And here's where we understand how lynching functioned within the Jim Crow South as it did across the nation as a strategy, as a tool for keeping people in their place, so to speak, mm-hmm. uh, and, and keeping Black people um, from, you know, striving for more for themselves and their families. When it came to uh, Mississippi in particular, this was one of the, the most violent places. In fact, if you look at the statistics for lynchings that took place in the United States on the 20th century, Mississippi was always on the top of that list. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and many people might have heard of the Emmett Till case, of 1955, you know, a teenager from Chicago who, who was killed while visiting family in Mississippi. And, and I think uh, it's important to, to understand that this was the context in which someone like Hamer grew up. You know, this is the context in which he was living in an environment where one could not even address a white person um, in any kind of way. I mean, just simply looking at someone a particular way or responding in a particular way could could lead to 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 the loss of life. I mean, that's how dangerous it was in the context. Uh, and so in terms of the strategies, so so certainly violence became a strategy to keep people out of the, the ballot box, um, but also other uh, strategies, which uh, effectively were legal strategies, meaning that 
yes, they were unconstitutional as we are, you know, are very clear about in the way we can talk about it now, but at the statewide level, there were all of these policies, including you know, the literacy tests, grandfather clauses. So, so essentially looking for loopholes whereby um, people who are supposed to have the right to vote uh, would be blocked. And these are, I mean, they were, they were unfair. Um, and in, in fact, you know, if, if you think of someone like Rosa Parks shared how many times she would go to take you know, the literacy test uh, and would keep failing. The irony is that even when you supposedly could pass and you actually knew the answers, guess what? Uh, the clerk would find a way to say you failed because it wasn't about actually passing the test. It was about making sure that you did not succeed in being able to cast the ballot. That had huge consequences for Mississippi in particular because by the early 1960s, only 5% of the black population of Mississippi mm -hmm. were registered to vote. We're talking about 5% of an estimated 450,000 people in one state not having a voice, not being able to, to shape policies, not being able to shape laws. And certain aspects of their lives are being shaped and decided, decisions are being made for them by individuals who don't have their best interests at heart. Uh, and so, these were the circumstances that gave rise to someone like Fannie Lou Hamer, recognizing how unfair it was to be supposedly a citizen of the United States, but not actually have access to all the rights and privileges, and then facing violence and resistance when seeking those rights and privileges. She uh, set out to overturn the system, certainly wanted to dismantle Jim Crow, that was key but also particularly to expand Black voting rights. Uh, and as I point out in the book, she played an instrumental role in the passage of the Voting Rights Act, which radically changed um, mm. politics in America. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're of course talking about it to this very day because there's so many attacks on the Voting Rights Act. But the reason why people are attacking it so much is because of its power. You know, we, we understand historically how it, it transformed Black politics in particular. Mm. Yeah. I mean, like this, like you were mentioning the percentage of black voters in mm. Mississippi in the early 1960s was five, 6%. And then after the passage of the voting rights act, by the end of the 1960s, it was like close to 60%. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that just showed the impact that one law had mm -hmm. on mm -hmm. people's ability to affect change in their own and their own state. So I think it's important for people to understand too, that a, a literacy test is not, it's not like a standardized test mm -hmm. that a child gets in school where you oh. read a sentence and choose answer C is the correct answer. You spell the word there mm -hmm. in such a manner in this context. It's not that kind of a literacy test. Many times they were asking very detailed questions right. that the vast majority of citizens of any race would mm -hmm. not be able to answer. Like you were saying, asking questions about details about the state constitution, <laughs> which by the way, the majority of Americans could not pass a, a quote unquote literacy test about their state constitution exactly. today. Um, mm -hmm. Who reads their state constitution? Exactly. Exactly. Literally. I mean, unless you're an attorney and that's your job, I, I can almost promise you that almost nobody reads their state constitution. <laughs> and it's written in legal language. Mm -hmm. It's not accessible mm -hmm. to people who even have a bachelor's degree in the United States in 2021. Hi friends, it's Sharon. If you enjoyed a recent episode with author and public theologian Issa Macaulay, then I have the perfect podcast recommendation for you. 
No Small Endeavor. Produced by Great Feeling Studios and PRX, No Small Endeavor is an acclaimed podcast series that explores what it means to live a good life. Each episode, host and award-winning theologian Lee C. Camp brings you thoughtful conversations with artists, philosophers, politicians, and theologians like Hollywood legend Rob Reiner and civil rights hero Reverend James Lawson about what it means to find true happiness and flourish in our everyday life. So don't miss out. Follow No Small Endeavor on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. And tell them I sent you. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. You know, as you were talking, it made me think about the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party, which Fannie Lou Hamer helped to establish, yes. which was so important. Yes. And at the time, so we're talking about 1964. And at the time, the state of Mississippi, and this is true for uh, other Southern states at the time, uh, ultimately excluded Black participation. So we're talking about a Democratic Party that was only, um, that was supposed to represent the entire state, you know, only involving white people. Uh, and we've already discussed the implications of that for, for Black people's lives. When Fannie Lou Hamer pointed out this problem and said, listen, we need to have a, a party that represents uh, the full diversity you know, mm-hmm. of the state, uh, some of the responses were, listen, you know, Black people are not interested in politics. You know, Even if they were given full access to vote, they wouldn't vote anyways. Uh, and so you have all of these completely false statements being made. And one of the things that Fannie Lou Hamer was able to do through the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party was to demonstrate that, in fact, Black people had a lot of interest in voting. Uh, Once they knew about the power of the vote, they were eager to exercise it. Uh, And so the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party held a mock election, a mock election that gave people in the community the opportunity to come out and cast the ballot. And when you take a look at those numbers, I mean, so many people participated and she uh, and her colleagues were able to say, look, it's not a question of interest. People are interested. It's a question of access. Mm-hmm. People are, are being blocked. And if you would remove the blockages, and then guess what would happen? People would show up uh, as they absolutely did after the Voting Rights Act, and people would show up. And not only would they show up to vote, you know, they would run for office. They would, they would play an active role in electoral mm-hmm. politics. And so she was able, I think, to, to reveal the hypocrisy of all of it. And of course, did so again when she showed up at the Democratic National Convention. She brings up this very same issue about, you know, voter suppression and and the challenges that Black people were facing. Uh, but you're absolutely right. It's it's um, some days, you know, I, I marvel uh, not only at the fact, as you point out, it is so close. I mean, I, I'm talking about Fannie Lou Hamer and every single day I'm meeting someone who knew her, someone mm-hmm. who, right, I mean, who I just some days I'm just thinking, wow, this is surreal. But 
there are, I mean, there are relatives, there are friends, there are people who are telling me, you know, I remember driving her around in Chicago and, you know, and I'm thinking, wow, you know, it's, it's 2021. She passed away in 1977. Mm-hmm. So this, this history that we're talking about, you know, it's, it's so close. It's mm-hmm. so close. Uh, and, and it just, I think it's important for, me, for people to, re- to reflect on that. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think when we talk about today, the challenges of voter suppression, you know, we have to recognize that, you know, all of these, you know, stories are connected. It's not this like, oh, this distant past mm-hmm. um, and now it's emerged again. No, and in so many ways, it feels like a, a continuation of a struggle from the 60s and 70s. Uh, and we have to, to fight, I think, to, to protect those rights still. Mm-hmm. Yeah, none of this exists in a vacuum. It wasn't mm-hmm. like, well, we had the civil rights movement and now that has ended. Right. And we don't have to worry about any of that anymore because we closed that chapter. You know what I mean? I feel like Mm -hmm. that is how some Americans, probably not anybody Mm -hmm. listening to this, (laughs) but that's how some Americans feel like that was a long time ago. We fixed it. Basically Mm -hmm. we took our rubber stamp, fixed it and it we're good to go. Like we said it and forget it. You know what I mean? Like the infomercial, the infomercial rotisserie of it, set it and forget it. You know what I mean? And I think it's important for people to understand that, Mm -hmm. that your, our rights are not set it and forget it. Right. And they're not set it and forget it for anybody. They're certainly not set it and forget it for people who continue for continue to struggle throughout mm-hmm. the 1960s to gain access to their con something they were guaranteed under the constitution right. nearly a hundred years prior. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yes. I would love to hear yes. more about the title of your book and the title of your book is until I am mm-hmm. free. What did that mean to Fannie Lou Hamer? Well, I think it comes from quite frankly, it is perhaps the most powerful statement that I think Hamer made. And, and, and as I explained, she was a remarkable, remarkable speaker and just passionate in her delivery. And she had a lot of catchy phrases too, um, that stayed with people, but she would say, whether you are black or white, you are not free until I am free. Uh, Or sometimes she would say it another way. Nobody's free until everybody's free. And, and I think this is a message that's so powerful today. It, it's a way in which he was constantly trying to get people, particularly within the U.S. context, trying to get Americans to see themselves um, as part of a whole, right? And, and to get away from just the, the individualistic perspective. We still struggle to this very day. You know, when we make decisions, I think it's, it's easy to focus on what, what I need as an individual or my perspective. You know, there's a lot of focus on the individual. But Hamer was trying to say that we are all connected. Uh, even if we come from different backgrounds, even if we are of different races, different uh, socioeconomic status or what have you, we are connected. We are part of this national polity. And that means that if one person is in chains, that should be a problem for all of us, right? We can't truly experience liberation if our brother or sister, right? Someone sitting next to us is in chains. How do you, how do you actually enjoy freedom when you look to the side and see someone who's bound? And, and so that was the essence of that statement is to get people to realize that we cannot be thinking individualistically. Uh, our fates are connected. And, and so we have to be thinking 
about how to make this nation better and to make it better, it means making sure that every single person, regardless of um, their background, have an opportunity to not only exist in this nation, but to thrive. And so we have to make it better for someone else, right? Even if we feel like, you know, we don't have any problems and, and obviously we all have our own challenges, but I, I think it forces us to move away from the, oh, okay, well, I didn't experience it. So it's not a, it's not my problem. Well, no, you didn't experience it, but your, your neighbor did. So that's a problem. And it should be your concern that your neighbor's going through that. I think it, it calls for empathy, certainly, but it calls for a, a sort of a shared unity and collective vision that I think we need more of, quite frankly, today. I would love to hear more about your perspective as a historian about why history forgets some people mm -hmm. and not others. Why are some people like Fannie Lou Hamer um, not taught about in schools? Obviously we can't teach about everybody that's ever existed. I mean, yeah, I acknowledge right. as a teacher that there are limitations to how much time we have in the classroom, but why do some people who had a significant impact Mm -hmm. get relegated to, you know, like you got to dig them up in a crusty old card catalog. <laughs> Why yeah. are some people get given that status and other people, we have a thousand documentaries made about them. Do you have any insight mm -hmm. about that? Yes. I think there are various factors. Um, when it comes to the civil rights movement in particular, one of the things that I think is clear when you look at the literature, when you look at what people tend to focus on you see the ways that we tend to, I think, elevate certain leaders who we think we can present to the world as sometimes perfect, um, you know, perfect figures. And, and here I'm talking about, I'm thinking about someone like Rosa Parks, right? I mean, Rosa Parks, her story is a lot more complex than we tend to present. Mm -hmm. So mainstream narratives will always you know, say to us, Rosa Parks was just a tired older lady mm -hmm. having a rough day at work. And then she was asked to give up her seat and she didn't. And then of course we know um, what followed and the boycott and everything. We don't really talk about the fact that Rosa Parks had been an activist for many years leading up to that period. And it wasn't just like she felt tired. No, she was part of a collective effort to challenge these laws. Mm -hmm. So it was not as spontaneous in the, in the way that we tried to um, you know, overemphasize. And then we don't talk about Claudette Colvin, who was 15 years old, who also did something courageous, uh, like Rosa Parks, before Rosa Parks did, you know, she also didn't give up her seat. And she was forced off a bus. And, and because she decided that it was wrong, you know, to be asked to give up her seat for a white person. Well, we don't talk about her because she was 15. And be also because she got pregnant uh, shortly thereafter. And, and there was this notion that you know, are you going to put before the world a teenage mom mm. um, as the figure of the movement, right? I mean, so here's where, you know, we can talk about this notion of respectability politics, whereby certain people get handpicked as leaders. And it's true, even in the way we write the history, we tend to focus on certain people because we're looking for these perfect icons. And the truth is no one is perfect. Even when we try to present them as perfect, no one is perfect. Um, but also what we fail to acknowledge is that leaders come from, you know, different places and spaces and, and leaders don't all look the same. Everyone's not going to be in a suit and tie. Everyone's not going to have a college education. You know, we, we may feel comfortable having the, the person, you know, representing a group, 
have a PhD or what have you, maybe that that seems like a powerful move. But sometimes it'll be the person with with a sixth grade education who who just has a passion and a vision, um, and and they too need to be valued and respected. So I think when it comes to the way we we write history, the way we tell history, we do have a, a tendency to privilege certain people, oftentimes because of their social status, um, because of their their education. Quite frankly, even because of their looks, mm-hmm. I say to people, it's not lost on me. I mean, Fannie Lou Hamer. Um, you know, was a heavy set black woman. Fannie Lou Hamer was a disabled black woman. You know, she didn't. Um, you know, when you when you heard her speak, uh, she spoke from her heart. But you know, she didn't sound as polished as other individuals. That made some people uncomfortable. And I think even how we write the history, that may not always be. You know, the the person who we want to focus on. We may want to focus on, you know, the person who who comes off as more polished and refined. I mean, I think it speaks to our own misconceptions and limitations, quite frankly. Uh, thankfully, I think, you know, historians are, are telling more and more of these stories. I'm, you know, I'm certainly not the only person writing about Hamer, and, and, and it's a, which is a good thing. I think it's wonderful that more people are writing about her as well as an array of other um, activists. But, but my sense is that it comes um, from our own sort of collective insecurities about who we think of as the perfect leader, you know, or the, the perfect face of the movement and we tend to focus on those individuals. Mm. That's such an interesting way to put it and such an interesting thing to think about that we, the, the people that we hold up in history are the people that we feel comfortable mm-hmm. holding up, that it's about our own comfort level. And that's in part why they're elevated to certain statuses. And some yeah. other people, perhaps we feel less comfortable through a, for a variety of reasons, like you mm-hmm. said, like a teen mom or somebody's mm-hmm. looks or their, how able-bodied they are. We just yeah. intrinsically feel less, less comfortable putting them up as sort of this paragon of like, of, mm-hmm. you know, here's who our, our leaders of this move- movement should be or were. That is a very interesting way of putting it. I would love to hear what would you love for people to take away from this book, from this story, from her story, what would you love for people to know about Fannie Lou Hamer? Well, I hope that people take from her story, you know, certainly a a source of inspiration. I I want people, by the time they finish reading the book, I want them to be looking inward and asking themselves, what can I do? What can I contribute? It's very easy to focus on what we don't have. Uh, and I, you know, I'm often guilty of that saying, well, I don't have certain resources or I don't have certain access in these certain, you know, these spaces. Um, yes, all that could be true. But, but I think the better question is, what do we have? And it could be small. You know, it could be that you, you don't have many, you don't have much material resources, but, but maybe you have a particular gift or, or maybe you were just really good at bringing people together, you know, maybe, maybe that's your skill, right? And, and so how do you use whatever it is you have in order to move things forward in a positive direction? I think the most dangerous place to be is to be a spectator. I think Mm. it's, it's a dangerous thing where you're sort of going through life, looking around you and thinking, wow, you know, look what's happening in this nation, look what's happening in the world and so many problems, if only I could do something. Well, yes, you can, in fact, uh, because someone like Fannie Hamer could have easily said, 
I have nothing to offer. You know, mm-hmm. here I am at the Mississippi Delta. I, I, I hardly have any material resources. I, I don't have the education, the experience, the access. And she could have just put up her hands, but she didn't. She mm-hmm. decided that what she did have was a voice. What she did have was love in her heart and a passion and a drive mm-hmm. to make a difference. And she just used, she started there. I was able to build and build and build. And in doing so, she left a legacy that we were able to now have a conversation about her, you know, years after her passing. And so I think um, that, you know, I certainly hope that when people read the book, they will learn about Hamer, they'll be inspired by her, and then it would propel them to start thinking um, strategically about how they too can make a difference, whether it's in their community, whether it's on a national level. And the book offers all of these interesting, um, I think, strategies that you know that Hamer employed that might resonate with us in some way um, and we can see possibilities for what we can do specific spheres of influence so that's my hope I love that I really love that that is amazing I love the idea too that nobody can do everything it's actually not your job to do everything that's Mm -hmm. not possible but everyone can do something And it can be a something very small. It could be, you know, I I don't have a lot of resources, but what I, what I can do is talk to my neighbors and offer to watch their kids while they go vote, Mm -hmm. or I can help register people or, Mm -hmm. and it doesn't have to necessarily even be politically, but Mm -hmm. there is something we can all do to improve our communities. You don't have to do it all, but everyone can do something. And I love that she absolutely embodied that, that she took what she had, where she was with the resources available to her and propelled them into something much larger. Here we are 44 years (laughs) after her death, talking about her, writing books about her. She likely thought, wow, I don't know if these contributions that I have are going to make a difference. She probably didn't think that 44 years in the future, people would be, historians would be studying her and people would be talking about her on NPR and in bookstores and on podcasts. And like that probably would blow her mind, right? Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. that we're having this conversation about her today, but it just goes to show the impact that small actions can have on the world. I absolutely love that. Tell everybody where they can find you and tell us Mm -hmm. one more time about the name of your book and where we can find it. Yes. Uh, So my book uh, is entitled Until I Am Free, Fannie Lou Hamer's Enduring Message to America. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I currently teach history um, at the University of Pittsburgh, uh, but people can find me easily on the web. Uh, I'm also on social media. uh, So you can find me on Twitter or also on Instagram. So Mm -hmm. feel free to get in touch with me. Mm. And is your handle Keisha Blaine? Yes, on Twitter, it's at Keisha Blaine. um, And on Instagram, Keisha and Blaine. I love this. And I absolutely love the message of the book. I fell in love with her as a character. And I'm so grateful for your time today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for listening to the Sharon Says So podcast. I am truly grateful for you. And I'm wondering if you could do me a quick favor. Would you be willing to follow or subscribe to this podcast or maybe leave me a rating or a review? Or if you're feeling extra generous, would you share this episode on your Instagram stories or with a friend? All of those things help podcasters out so much. I cannot wait to have another mind blown moment with you next episode. Thanks again for listening to the Sharon Says So podcast.